Welcome to the Femsplainers. I'm Christina Hoff Summers. And I'm Danielle Crittenden. And today we're talking about love and marriage. It's June. And we're interviewing your fabulous husband on the occasion of your 30th wedding anniversary this week. Well, he's the only guy we could get right. (laughs) So our guest today is, in fact, my husband, David Frum. He's an editor with The Atlantic. He's author of the most recent book, Trumpocracy. You most often see him on TV talking about politics, but we're going to get him talking about love and marriage, different topics, which he's got a lot of views on, which... He never gets to talk about in these other forums. So. No, I miss that. He's interesting on so many topics. But let's, let's talk about love and marriage. One of my daughters told me recently, engagements are now being filmed on, you know, like they've gone on to YouTube and Instagram, Instagram and things. The sort of theatrical nature, I guess, for the fewer people who are getting engaged, it's become this show. It's become this thing you put on social media. And the man has this pressure, I guess, to do a... Well, mine was not on social media. There was no social media. (laughs) (laughs) Well, tell us, let's let's talk a little bit about this. So, Christina, tell me about, you know, you met Fred. Fred Fred died, how many years ago now? Well, it'll be three years in October. Three years. So, three years. So, I'm a widow, but he was older than me. I don't know. I can't do the math, but (laughs) (laughs) uh, because we've had, how many glasses of wine have we had already before this podcast? But it doesn't matter. No, we met in... Well, I was a grad student Mm -hmm. at Brandeis University. He was not my professor, but he was in the department. And he was a certain number. philosophy professor. And actually, by the way, one of the legendary. A brilliant philosophy professor. And he did logic and metaphysics, and I was interested in ethics. So it wasn't the same field, but he was fabulous and wonderful. Oh, and inappropriately aged. He was like 24? I can't remember if he was 24, 24 years old. And, and you'd uh, never been married. No, I'd never been yeah. married. But it wasn't only me. All the girls in this program were in love with Fred. He was a bachelor. He did recently divorced. Mm-hmm. And we all had a crush on him. But I was able to have coffee with him. And then we went out to was the Orson Welles Theater, had a cafe. <laughs> <laughs> and he just told jokes. And he was funny and brilliant and fabulous. And So, yeah, pre-social media, pre-these weird public spectacle. No, I, I think for me, it w- for both of us, it was sort of love at first sight. And we, I don't know, we, this was October. And after Thanksgiving, we moved in together. <laughs> and one of the questions we're going to talk about with David, because we put out over social media questions to ask him about love and marriage. And often, many times we got the question was, how do you know? And there's really no answering that except that you know, and we'll get into that in the interview with him. I met David when I was 24, and he would have been 27, and I met him in his mother's backyard, that his mother, or his what parents... What were you doing in his mother's backyard? No, it sounds sketchy. No, his, his parents had, David had been away at school. This was in Toronto. We both came from media families, but it was like the Montagues and Capulets. My father, my stepfather had founded the Toronto Sun, which was a conservative newspaper. And his mother was this liberal icon, super famous at the CBC, but yes, liberal icon. So, So the fact that her son had gone away to school in the United States and had become quite conservative. I mean, he was a Reaganite conservative. Alex B. Keaton. <laughs> it was totally 
Totally. <laughs> Let's face it. <laughs> and and very like he was known to be very intellectual. And so I knew his sister a little bit. So when his mother had this party for him to come back, welcome him back from law but school. Who made the mistake of inviting you? <laughs> yeah, definitely his sister. And and I didn't think anything about it. I really admire his sister, Linda Frum. Love, She's I now a senator. Sister. She's amazing. Anyway, but she invited me, and, and my mother, my stepfather was away, probably for good. Yeah, you, he wouldn't have allowed you to go to that. We're no, no, I think it just would have been more awkward. But anyway, so we, I went to this sort of garden party that she had to welcome him, David, back from law school. And I, I met him. You know, I, I wasn't thinking anything about it. I was, we had mutual friends, and I, I was happy to be there with Linda. You were and, so cute. That I want to see that picture of the little Danielle. Well, <laughs> he kept coming up to me at the party. And saying, you know, I'm, I'm David Frum. I'm, I'm really sorry. I haven't had a time to chat with you. I'm like, yeah. look who thinks he's David Frum. Like, yeah. What the hell? I, I'm having a good time. It's yeah. nice to meet yeah. you. Thank yeah. you very much. I thought nothing of it. And then two days later, he called me. And apparently he'd asked his sister, what is the appropriate amount of time to wait before you call a girl? Apparently, guys, two to three days. Two to three days. And then you called, of course. Like, there was no texting. It was a landline. I had one of those portable phones. It was, you know, the size of a loaf of bread. Right, right. <laughs> and he asked me out to lunch, and we, we went to lunch in this very quaint cafe in Toronto, in Yorkville, for those who know it. And he was, I mean, imagine somebody saying to you, Hey, do you want to play tennis sometime? A little pickup game of tennis? And you go, yeah, sure, that'd be great. And then it turns out you're playing tennis with Roger Federer. Right. <laughs> like, it was the most intimidating. Like a, a Harvard University interview. No, it wasn't even that because what was even scarier was he wasn't even aware of how intellectually terrifying he was. So I show up, and I, remember, I did not go to college. I worked in a newspaper right out Don't of high school. Don't brag, Danielle. You're just so cool. Too cool for school. <laughs> no, too cool it's, for school. Just, it's a thing I, I struggle with. Anyway, meet him in this little, cat, little restaurant. And he immediately, and he's not even, I swear, he's not even aware of it. He's like, you know, so what book are you reading right now? And I say, at least I read books. You know, I said, and he goes, oh, really? You know, flick with the racket. Uh, why do you like that? Oh, I say lobbing it back because of this. And then suddenly you're running back and forth all over the court going. <gasps> <laughs> and like, I just, oh, my God, this guy is so smart. I can't. I, oh, my God. I, he must think I'm a total idiot. And I wasn't even it wasn't even romantic. I'm just thinking this is the most maybe humiliating experience of my life today. And anyway, we leave the restaurant and I'm just thinking, well. <laughs> that went well. Uh, <laughs> won't be hearing from this guy again, but, you know, maybe thank God thank that God. was just too terrifying. And we get out into the street and he said, you know, he's David, he's wearing his little blazer and things. Yep. And he says, um, he says, well, that was very nice. Thank you. Um, he shakes um, your hand? He, he, no, he reached into his breast pocket and he pulled out his card because, of course, he had a card. And he handed Alex it B. To Keaton me. alert. Alex B. Keaton alert. The family <laughs> ties. <laughs> and he, he tries to thrust this card on me. And this is the one moment I had any self respect or dignity after this workout. I let the card hang in the air and I stared at it and I said, I don't call boys. And he was so embarrassed. He went, oh, oh, my God, of course you don't. And like the card went hastily back into his pocket. But I thought, okay, 
set match. Yeah, you did it. That was got good. you back. Yeah, you got him back for everything because <laughs> social faux pas. Social faux which pas is much more embarrassing. No, but it was just like okay, I still have some self respect. And then <laughs> and then you know we went out a few days after that, and like we were engaged within nine months. When were you madly in love? Because I have to admit, I was madly in love with Fred like right, on away. Our, right away. And then I went home in a daze and just, you know, I couldn't think. And I couldn't eat. Like couldn't, right away after the first right, Well, Well, I'd seen him around. So, I, you know, that's another thing is if you're in the environment with the person, that's why I think you should be able to date people at work right. or in your school because you know them and their milieu. And I was smitten. I was just had been so intimidated. But he was. That being said, it's not like he was patronizing or mansplaining. He was, he was fascinating. He was David. He was David, but he was scary. And then he called me. So he did call me a couple of days after that. <laughs> uh, two days. And we went out to, to dinner and things. But I was still, I, I found him very intimidating, but fun, but like really interesting, really fun. But I didn't know, like, I don't know, is he my type? He's... He, He's a bit nerdy. We can, we can say that. He was a yeah. little nerdy. It was the nerd and the prom queen. <laughs> <laughs> no, not the prom queen. But yes, the, yes, yes. The nerd, nerdy. Wasn't and your the, mom like the, the, the Miss America of Oh, my mom, is, my mom is truly stunning. But anyway, but anyway, so is he a little nerdy? I'm thinking, I don't know he's my type, but he's really interesting. I'm intrigued. And then it was his birthday dinner, and he decided, this like has never happened since, so don't ever get your helps up when a man offers to cook. He said, I'm going to, my mother, his mother always on his birthday cooked him this recipe called Lobster American. And it's a, it's a escoffier, French escoffier, classic French recipe. It's a very elaborate recipe. And his mother was away. So he was decided that he would cook this for me. Lobster American. Lobster American. Boy. And it's very French in that you have to guillotine the lobsters while they are still alive. You don't just fecklessly dropped them in the boiling pot of water. So I went to his place and he had these scritching lobsters in the back of the car that he brought out. And he's like very David, like he opens the Escoffier cookbook and he <laughs> stares at the recipe and there are these lobsters wandering around. And then he takes it and, and the recipe calls for the tip of the knife to go right in the back of the head of the lobster. So he takes off his jacket, you know, finally he takes off his blazer. He rolls up his sleeves and he <laughs> Oh god, it's good you, you see it's good you knew his family cuz you kind of knew he wasn't a sociopath. No, actually, that's when I kind of <laughs> fell in love cuz I thought he was kind of sexy. I thought he was kind of nerdy and then he took off his jacket and he did road in college and you know, he had, oh, so he had those masculine oh. forearms and then he just proceeded to hack these poor lobsters. Don't you love masculine forearms? Those muscles. I know. Oh. I know. And then, Sometimes and then, like, then, as they say, the rest was history. But I thought, okay, I can like this guy. And, and the, by the way, the recipe was excellent. But anyway, we've got to bring him on. So I guess I'm going to have to take off my wife hat and put on my interviewer hat and be very tough with him. Hard-hitting questions. Hard-hitting questions. You know what's a little bit, I'm a little worried, because it's a little intimidating to have your husband in on our... Our fam's playing. Like having your dad to the school Yeah, play. it's like he's going to mansplain and no, judge. judge us, but. Okay, well, let's bring him on. Okay. David Frum. Only
Welcome, David, to the Femsplainers. Hi, honey. <laughs> Thank you both. Did you remember the milk? <laughs> uh, well, I think this was kind of our idea to bring you on because Christina's known you maybe even 20 years, almost right. as long as we've been married. Everybody thinks of you as this very stern and serious man on TV who has very worried about politics. Well, the and situation is indeed very serious. It's very, very serious. And they never get to see the side of you that really can address any topic very seriously. <laughs> and, <laughs> and very often, it's on relationships. I mean, I remember when you ran a website out of our house, and we had about, I don't know, six or eight millennials working for you. And they, right. at the end of the day, they would all find their way into the kitchen where I would pour them cocktails. And that was really our editorial board meetings is what we called them. And they would just pelt you with often career advice, but more often than not, romantic and advice. And you. Well, <laughs> I, was, I was just, you know, I had to teach them the difference between a good red wine and a bad red wine. But, but I just, I want people to feel that, that so many people, and I think even over your Twitter feed, and always approach you with personal problems. And you'll sometimes say, why are they asking me? But it's because <laughs> you have such good advice. So we opened our, all our social media channels to tell everybody that David Frum would be here, but they were not allowed to ask him anything about politics. They could only ask about love, marriage, relationships. So David, the Trump marriage. <laughs> <laughs> Let's... <laughs> Christina. Sorry. Now you're being mischievous. So, well, the occasion is that not only are we nearing the 30th anniversary of our wedding, but we are marking today on the day we record 31 years plus a day since the first time I saw you. That's right. And then about two days from here, going on the first date that we talked about. So this is, yeah, this is a, this is a nice moment. I mean, I hope it's nice. I hope it's nice, still nice for you. <laughs> but we got so many good questions between David's Twitter feed, Christina's, and the Femsplainers, and Facebook, you guys all came through. And I think we should just go through the questions and discuss. Christina, do you want to start with one? Is there one that leapt out to you? Yes. A Twitter follower says, there's a girl in my homeroom class <laughs> that I really like, but I can't tell if she likes me. How do I find out? You know, I never actually was able to solve that problem <laughs> myself. So I'm going to defer to the women here um, because I, uh, yeah, I, I, I always bungled that one. What would you say, Christina? I never, I, I never had a boy in my homeroom class like me. Well, if you don't know that shrimp. she likes you, by now she might not. <laughs> I mean, they, we have a way of letting you know, no? Uh, no, no. The girls are torn. And I think, I think the young man, we don't know what age we're talking about, but women, young women appreciate a little forthrightness, uh, a nice gesture, a compliment. Compliment her shoes. Well, no, then... That will give another impression, right, David? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, also, in these days, aren't, aren't compliments fraught? Um, oh, true, true. Benevolent true. sexism. Yes. Yeah, yeah, true. Compliments are very true. fraught. I don't know. Offer to carry her books. Does anybody do that? that, that to carry uh, her uh, they, oh, no, that's fraught, too. You know, you realize as, as you start going through this, the, the human race is not going to continue. <laughs> generations at this rate. That actually, they have no way, not to veer too much into the serious, but one of the things, one of the reasons this topic is maybe interesting is. In the early part of the 1960s, when Danielle and I were, when I was born and Danielle was not. I was a child, bride. Uh, <laughs> at age 30, about half the population had been married. And today, at age 30, about 17% of the mm -hmm. population has been married. And 
60% of young people don't have a serious romantic interest in their life. Probably never in American history have the sexes been as distant one from another in their 20s as they are today. And that, that's a tragedy. That's, I think, one of the reasons why maybe there's a bit of a generation gap here is that we think we're communicating something that's obvious, that you fall off a log, that it's just natural. And it's like this whole language has been lost in something. I mean, they, I mean obviously, there are many kinds of progress, but there's something that has been lost, this ability to form intimate relationships in the most emotionally intense period of your life. And there's so much literature that encourages antagonism between the sexes. And, and I worry that young people are just read so much about this anger and blaming men and then men reacting by being horrible and... Well, I, I don't know that I'm a huge believer that these kinds of cultural... I think the impulses that bring people together are so powerful that you could do a lot of cultural messaging and it wouldn't much affect it. There's something... Structural? Something, yeah, big. Something that the young men don't find employment, so they're not of any interest to anybody. But they didn't in the Depression, and there was marriage. Well, marriages had a little, were under stress, certainly in the Depression, but you know, we now have a world in which people stay adolescents economically yeah. for a long time. And as, uh, who was it who says in Clueless about high school boys? Oh, uh, Alicia Silverstone, Cher, Cher Horowitz. Says they're, they're like dogs, they're always all over you. And so if, if you encourage people to, at 28 and 31 and 32 still to be fundamentally high school boys. Dogs. They're just they're not, <laughs> so char- dog. not so charming. <laughs> I just want to actually answer that young man one more time. Just whatever you do, be forthright. Because you may as well know one way or the other, right? If she likes you. If she likes you. So just can't even say man up. Person up and do something nice and maybe you'll find out she likes you. Okay, but to, to your point, David, so we have from Scott, what did do you especially like about your wife that lifted to the level of marriage? And what do you think her answer to that same question would be? Oh, good. So you get to mansplain my answer. That's a great relief. (laughs) Well, no, then, then you get to grade my work. True. Okay. Good, good, good question, Scott. So what's behind that question actually is the way that people approach modern relationships, which is there's this long shopping period. There's a lot of deliberation. You sit there with your buddies, you really work it out. You wait until, you know, a decade or so and really take a long time. Danielle and I were engaged within about nine months of of meeting each other. We were, I think, interiorly engaged. We'd made up our own mind about it within probably two or three months. And as I look back on myself, there, there wasn't that deliberate I often say, looking back at that myself then, I would not let that man buy a refrigerator. <laughs> he was out of his mind. And <laughs> to a great extent, I, I still am. So I think one of the things that, that leads you to these is you know, this intense longing for this other person. And if it's such a rational decision, there's a lot. To, I'm a big believer in rationality. And Danielle had, even then, I could see she's absolutely honest. I mean, she cannot tell a lie. She won't abide. Christina is discovered to her peril. She she will not abide a lie to be told in her presence. And she's, I wouldn't say fearless because that doesn't do, but even whether she's afraid or not, she acts fearlessly. She will take on anybody of any size. And it doesn't matter if she knows she's not going to win. So she had, she had all of these noble qualities, but the noble qualities, I must say, were more reassurance that I was doing the right thing than motive. The, the motive was like much more in the lizard part. And of the she book. was a hot babe. Well, she, she was and is, but, <laughs> but look, there, there, there's a planet full of hot babes, but there's, there's one. There, there's like a certain, you know, you can walk past nine on the street and just think, oh, there's a nice looking woman yeah. and have no impulse to do anything about it. And then there's, 
there's the one that makes you stop and say, if, if I don't have her, I don't know why I'm alive. Aww. Well, well, you wrote this beautiful column on the occasion 10 years ago of our 20th wedding anniversary, which you wrote something to what you were saying. You said, we would not allow ourselves to sign a cell phone contract in the state of mind in which most of us get married. On the other hand, if we're feeling cool, unexcited, and rational on our wedding day, that's even worse. <laughs> I think that's right. So young man in the homeroom class, is yeah. this, you know... Don't overthink it. Don't overthink it. All right, Chris. Yeah, because because there's, there's one of the, the reason people overthink it is because millennials, and especially those who are middle class or more advantaged than that, have lived through the divorce epidemic of their parents. Mm-hmm. And they are determined not to have that happen to them. And they think the way to avoid divorce is to be super careful about marriage, which means, yeah, the, well, one great way not to get divorced is never to get married in the first place. So, but they think it so hard that they lose the thing that they are afraid will be taken from them. And this, this is where we have to be humble. One of my other father, father's other saying, my father was married to my mother for 34 years until her very, very death at a very, very premature age, 54. He always insisted marriage was a lottery, meaning that you didn't really control the outcome. Because you could have two people who are the most compatible people in the world, love each other, and then one of them gets sick, or a child dies, or there is financial stress, or some other event beyond either control. And a marriage that might have worked under some circumstances fails under those circumstances. You can't control life. And mm-hmm. I think one of, the, one of the great marriage barrier among the under 30s who are economically able, and fewer and fewer of them are, let's acknowledge that, but among those who are, they still hesitate because they think that if only they plan this better, they can mm-hmm. avoid disaster. Mm-hmm. And, and life is not like that. You have to, like the boy in the homeroom class, if he's really a person, not That's not a actually, troll. his name is Elf. Hey, Elf. If he's not trolling <laughs> us. Um, you, you, just, you just have to plunge into the water and, and accept life and accept the risk of failure because there's no chance you're going to fail, then there's no chance you're going to succeed. You know, the philosopher Alan de Bottom said... Alan de Botton. De Botton. Yeah, he's amazing. He said, you know, the truth is, we're all deeply crazy. <laughs> and what you should do the first before you marry someone is sit down, and they will tell you how crazy they are, and you tell them how crazy you are, and see if your madness, <laughs> if <laughs> these are compatible. Line. And the line... <laughs> let, let me guess, Alain de Botton is not married. Because <laughs> that's not the way to do it. No, uh, because you, you, you learn by doing. I mean, you, of course, we all have our crazinesses. And what, is, what would be yours? Yeah, oh, good question. Oh, I'm, Real I'm, David from Super irrational about money. I have extreme financial anxieties that are often very disconnected from um, real world events. Be you worry about, you worry, you, really? Yeah, no, and I, I have, you have other, Danielle has other answers. <laughs> um, we would be a disaster I, I, because I, I, I am the worst person. I am so reckless with money, it's frightening. I, I know I can be reckless too, but I, then I, but I, I have, oh, but then I have you... layered craziness. I'm not going to go too much into oh, okay. it. I, I have all kinds of like phobias and aversions, but you don't talk it out. You just live it. And then, and what you also find is, and this is the other thing that is there, and this is a point that Danielle often makes, is if you're marrying in the most intense and really romantic time of your life, your personality is not yet fully formed. There is this idea that what you need to do is have two personalities buff to completion. And then, this is one of the big themes of Danielle's first book, 
And then what our mothers what didn't our, tell us available on Amazon. Forgive me, I didn't do a product. <laughs> it's all right, we do that a lot. <laughs> Danielle's first book, What Our Mothers Didn't Tell Us, <laughs> that you buff the personalities up, and then each personality goes looking for another personality that is compatible. And guess what? You don't find it. The way you achieve compatibility is by developing it together and by working through your crazinesses. And maybe you come out the other end of that a little less crazy, or at least with interlocking complementary crazinesses that, that function together. Can I tell just a funny story? I, I mean, I don't know whether I want to tell the story, but what the hell I will. When David and I were young married, the first year of marriage, I, I was going through a lot of, I would just have very severe bouts of depression. And, and, and we talked about being in our 20s. And, and I think a lot of it is brought on by, you know, uncertainty. And, and so I remember it's all good now, but I'd sometimes get depressed. And I remember David was working downtown at the Wall Street Journal. We lived in New York. Well, we lived in Brooklyn, and he would commute to Brooklyn before it was fashionable. Brooklyn when it was scary. Right. <laughs> um, and David would, would go to the Wall Street Journal. And one day he came back. And I'd sit in my little garret and write. And one day David came back, and he found me kind of slumped on the edge of the bed. And I'd had just a very, I was starting to slide into depression. And you came in and very tentatively sat next to me on the bed, and you said, is everything okay? And I said, no, I'm a fraud. And David, there's a long, long pause, and he said, so you're not the Countess of Germantes? <laughs> <laughs> and I laughed so hard. You don't even have to know who the Countess of Germantes was to, to, to appreciate it. And I think, like, that's how you get each other through. He never, he never <laughs> took my depression lightly, but sometimes you just need that person to come that, in. It tells you not to take it as seriously. Or, or just, you know, just brings it, you up for that yeah. moment. Anyway, okay, your turn to ask a question. Okay, Christina. my question is, I once heard Helen Marin interviewed, and she was in her 50s and had married and was very, very happy. And someone said, well, what was the key to the happiness? And aren't you sorry that you didn't meet him years ago because, you know, you've lost all... She said, oh, no, I'm glad I met him now because I didn't know when I was young what I know now, how to be happy in a marriage. And they said, what is it? And she said, just never criticize the other person. Hmm. Don't criticize. Don't be a scold and a nag, and you'll be happy. I can be a nag. Can you? I can be a, I can be a nag, and you can be a scold, I think. So <laughs> is she wrong? Because, I mean, a lot of people out there won't no, want to know. Some people also don't meet that person until their second marriage. Yeah. Which, you by the way, it's still great advice, by the way. I mean, yeah. that I scold and Danielle nags, and we are, <laughs> and it's never good. We should never do it. We should never do it. And, and Sometimes it, necessary, honey. Oh, maybe. But it's still, Helen Mirren. I think Mir there are ways around it. Helen Mirren is absolutely right. That, that, is, that is really good advice. And, but we fall short. You are my destiny When you hold my hand I understand the magic that you do We're talking to David Frum, author of Trumpocracy, senior editor at The Atlantic, and my husband. An all-around great guy. Well, this goes, this goes, actually, a number of people asked a variation of this question. So one is, was what, what is your secret sauce to lasting that long? How do you know that it's the one? Do you have an answer for that? I don't know that there are universal answers. I, I have to say, I'm a, as you know, a hyper-rational cerebral. Yeah, don't ever get in a 
argument with him because he went to law school. <laughs> oh, what is that like? What is it like to oh, argue with him? Gosh, it's is like he, is that point counterpoint? Yes, yes, up? it's like. I had a perfectly good reason for not stacking the dishwasher. And let me lay it out. For, and let me also tell you why you are wrong in having expected me to have. No, it's it's very tough. It's I, I never win. Precedence. I never win. You always win. I never win. You always win. <laughs> but I would say, although I am that way, <laughs> that my answer to the question I knew was, was not a rational answer. And it isn't now. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. like. How do you know to go over Niagara Falls? I mean, if you're in the river, you're going to go over Niagara Falls. <laughs> you have a lot of choice. About it. I, for, it was my connection to Danielle has, I, I, I have a lot of expl- after the fact rational explanations of why it's a good idea, but that's not why it happened. So I'm going to quote another author. Henry Miller said that he thought there was a moral obligation to be happy, that it showed a lack of imagination. and suggested that you can make so much misery with another person, but with sufficient will and character and intelligence, you can make it work. What he was suggesting is that a good marriage is an achievement and a virtue. Okay. A lot of things there. I mean, I've never read that passage, and I have to say... I may have made it up. It may not exist. <laughs> no, it was really good. It was really good. <laughs> because, <laughs> because, because actually, I, I, I'm thinking, I, I admit, I saw the, the movie version of A Room with a View. I never read the short story, and I think that's where that language comes from. And in the, they have a much more humane version of it in the movie version, which is the, the, English, the affluent English people are sitting in a carriage, and they're being driven by a young Italian man, and his girlfriend is sitting on the drive board beside him, and they're kissing while they're driving these respectable English people. And, and there's a suggestion, you know, can't he do that on, on his own time? Like, shouldn't the girl get down? And the vicar who's in the carriage in the movie, and not, maybe not in the short story, says, is there so much happiness in the world that we should interrupt it when it's being performed in front of us? So I, I've always loved that. I, given what we now know about the human mind, I'm very, I, I get very bulky at the suggestion that people could be happy if they chose. That's like telling nearsighted people that they can see better if they choose. I mean, we know that the constitution of the mind is highly biochemical, and we can help people to develop habits that will make them happier. But if you're constituted in a depressive way, you're not doing something wrong any more than a person who has a mobility impairment is doing something wrong by not walking. We can help them. We can maybe develop technologies, maybe techniques, maybe ways. And and those of us who have the good fortune to be happy can maybe try to share our happiness and bring them into the circle and, and affirm them. But there's a lot of unhappiness out there, too, and it's not the unhappy people's fault in a lot of the cases. Except that there are people that are just kvetches, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, right. well, and, sh- and create misery well, yeah. all well, around them. Also, it must be, I've, I know David's views on this, and they are very generous and compassionate, except he pulls that out at Valentine's Day. <laughs> which he hates. The thing about David is he hates anything that is forced upon him, like Valentine's Day. He, he is amazing at is birthdays and anniversaries. Is it, is it like bourgeois? That no, can't be. No, it's, he, doesn't like, he doesn't like anything that he feels... Invented by Hallmark cards. Well, you've made the point that it's, you figured out, this is a very keen insight, that it was related to my dislike of stand-up comedy. You don't right? like stand-up comedy? I don't. <gasps> uh, yeah, okay. well, explain it. You explained this to me. I never understood. I just thought I didn't like it. So I like banter. I like amusing conversation. I like people telling each other's jokes. What I don't like is being put in a chair and having someone who comes up and said, hello, I'm, I'm 
an employed funny person. And I'm now going to say <laughs> some funny things. And you're going to laugh. And you're going to laugh. And I think, well, maybe I will and maybe I won't, but I don't like this relationship that we have between us. That what if I have something funny to say? So when uh, so when the whole world is is or the whole card industry and, and people are trying to say, you know, as Dave, you know, David will do a beautiful wedding anniversary, but if, if, if some outer force is telling him, you have to take your wife out to dinner. I'm trying to do better on this one. I'm trying, <laughs> I am trying, but. But you hate it. And then you would say, at the end of the evening, you would say, I say, but why was that such a horrible thing? We, we, all we had to do was go out for dinner. You say, well, many people are lonely. And it's <laughs> okay. it's but, not, I, think how many people. So is there, is there, is there like an day. inner bohemian no it's it, but you know no it's david's rebellion you know our daughter miranda right i was gonna say a lot of, oh, a lot of the things so in our personality miranda, miranda gets it from david miranda and david are <gasps> you, don't, you often don't understand yourself until you have children and then you see your own characteristics refracted back to you sometimes in more extreme ways oh i don't know if that's good or bad Let and so think. so miranda is like hyper, oh my god miranda's hyper me Bockier, Bockiest. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of true. Okay, this is a this is a big question. Can smart slash strong men cope with smart slash strong women? We see a lot of, and we know a lot of amazing, beautiful. Not that the beauty is key, but the beautiful, intelligent, incredible women, and they just seem to have a very, very yeah. hard time finding a guy. Yes. Maybe the answer to the question lies in the question, what do we mean by strength? Two highly forceful, highly willful people, it can be difficult for them to be together. I mean, your, your mother once, Danielle, once said in another context uh, that, you know, but another person, you know, every family needs a listener. <laughs> We're in a lot of listeners in our family. <laughs> <laughs> and I, again, I don't know that I have a global answer to this, but if people are very forceful, it can be very difficult. And I think that a lot, large part of living together with another person, uh, maybe one part of the secret is understanding when and how to yield. And, you know, Danielle and I, you know, each two, we have, we are very complementary and we're not, you know, Danielle's obviously a very strong character. No. <laughs> <laughs> very strong character and very, you know, very... Uh, Faint in flowers. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was about to say, along with that very strong character, you're also incredibly accommodating of my peculiarities and that so we are not that that sentence could go wrong in so many ways to people who don't know you i don't think we want to go there but, um, this but, is but, it there are children listening but, but we're not but we're not butting heads all the time we do butt heads from time to time but you pull out your law decree no that's not that's not happening. by the way as a couple that i've observed over the years i don't see the underlying rage that is sort of emerges in some relationships you seem to be in love in all the stages that I've seen you, you seem like, for example, if you can observe people in restaurants and sometimes, you know, if they're chatting away and you think they just met and if there's silence and sort of sullen looking, you know, married a long time, you seem always that you're newlyweds. Oh, that's so nice, Christine. I've watched. I mean, well, we, I, I can only we, tell. We were very truth. lucky, as your dad said, the, the lottery aspect of marriage. You did. You hit the lottery. But, but I can't imagine either that, of you married to anybody else. No, no, <laughs> I can imagine so many problems with no, others. <laughs> no, it is, but and th this really is Danielle. I mean, Danielle is a magical. We, we all, everyone who knows oh, Danielle stop. knows. Oh, No, it's she, true. Let's she, just she let's just be honest on the she's podcast. A magical, charismatic person and incredibly funny. You just find yourself when you're in Danielle's world. I mean, it's it's a wonderful place to live, and I think all our children feel that way, and all of our friends, uh, and and so. 
yeah, she's intoxicating. So how can you not be in love with her? Well, that's thank you, darling. But I would also say to go back actually to that earlier question when what lifted the relationship to the level of marriage. And for me, it was two things. The first and lesser one was once I met David, I knew I would never, ever, ever be bored or run out of conversation. It was just, <laughs> just not going to happen. It was endlessly, endlessly interesting. But the main thing was, and I remember um, Mandy Stottmiller when she came on our thing, she said that she realized she was with the person she was going to marry because, to put it crudely, he called all her bullshit. That all these fan dances and little coquettish ways just felt absolutely dead on David. And he wanted to know who I was. He wanted to know the real me. And you actually, like your mother, I remember your mother couldn't flirt because she cared too much about the true person. I'm the world's like, yeah, I'm terrible at it. I'm the world's (laughs) least, like, that's why I flunked the the, the first Alf's question. (laughs) I I don't know, ask her. (laughs) I have no game. I can't flirt. Um, And that's as we're two direct people. But you, 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 I think I felt that I could trust him that once you meet someone who is, ah, forget all this, these games you're playing, I just want to get to know you. And, and then once getting to know you, I want to help you be your best you is the other thing. That to have someone who has your back, who tries to understand you, and then tries to keep you with your best you, I think, David, yeah. that is your, your great gift. I think maybe the, to go back to those questions that people ask, how do you know it's the one? One of the ways that our Times are different. And I think even within my time, I was different. I think the way a lot of people approach the question of relationships, well, I'm going to have a bunch of relationships. And if one of them is singly good or sticks out or seems remarkable, at that point, you know, marriage will come up. But if not, then I'll just go through and have a mm-hmm. bunch more. You know, when I met Danielle, Danielle was a, actually was much the more bohemian and non-bourgeois. Oh, and more feminist. More I just feminist. like, I, I have to admit, I, and I didn't think about marriage in marriage terms. I was a young, modern, feministy woman. And I thought, at most, we'll live together. We might be together a long time, but I didn't think of it in right. marital terms. And I always thought, you can't get your life organized until you're married. And that's even more true for men, oftentimes, than, than for women. Mm-hmm. So it was something that was an important thing that I wanted to do, and not at some point, but I needed to do it comparatively early so I could, how else do you organize the, the kind of life you want to lead if, you're, if, if, if you haven't resolved this fundamental question? Very distracting, right? It really it's super distracting and, and, and infantilizing. So I would say two things about that. First, it's better to have a one than the one. I, I mean, like, don't be so fixed on finding the one that you turn away from perfectly passable candidates. But the other thing, and this is really, this goes back to the thing you were saying about another Mazatotalis, think less about finding the right person and think more about being the right person. Entertain mm-hmm. that if the relationship is not working, it's you. That yeah. breakup speech, you know, it's not, it's not you, it's me. It's much <laughs> more true than people mean it insincerely, but it's usually true. So focus on how do I be the right person? How do I be my vessel? How do I be loyal and committed and protective and interested? And then, you know, it's just amazing. I mean, you know, and maybe like, maybe to go back to Elf's fundamental question. We just love Elf. We, just we love, love Elf. Elf. We Thank you, realize Elf. that would be the question of the podcast. Uh, that if, if Elf, you know what? I'm going to be someone whom any girl would like. I'm going to be in charge of my life. I'm going to be committed. I'm going to have a purpose. I'm going to have a mission. I'm going to be happy. The odds are, if once you're that guy and you approach that girl, she will. Okay. Actually. Well, so that brings me to an interesting question from one of our followers. What would be your advice, David? 
to the incels. And just do a quick mansplain of what incels are. Uh, we all know them here, but not everybody does. I'm not going to man. You, you femsplain it because I, I had never heard of this. You <laughs> know, <laughs> <laughs> you femsplain. Well, these are, you know, I don't know, a diverse group of young men who found one another on social media who are involuntarily celibate because no girl will come near them. They're untouchables and they're angry and they've found one another. And Mandy Statmiller actually did a very good story in, uh, what was Daily it? Beast. In, in the Daily Beast and found that a lot of them had been bullied. They were fatherless, though some of them are, have been, you know. They but, tend to be white, am I right? Like it's a white thing or, or is it diverse? Um, it's, it's very diverse. It's very diverse. diverse. Okay. It describes a lot of people as. It describes yeah, no, a lot it, it describes of lost what? young men. And so what, what would I say be, to them? Yes. Get a bath, get a haircut, get a job. Thank you, Jordan Peterson. <laughs> Go to the gym. <laughs> well, we just put Jordan Peterson out of a job by simplifying. Yeah, yeah, David, uh, you know, they need to hear this. Uh, what was the first be, thing? Get a haircut, get a job. Go Clean to your the room. Gym. Get a mission. Lose your grievances in a cause. And it doesn't, have to, it doesn't have to be going to the moon. Find some purpose for your life. In the days when everyone did get married, this is maybe, a, this is a super politically incorrect story. This year, but My late grandmother had a friend who had a daughter who was worried about not being married. And so she took the daughter to the train station and sat her down on a bench and watched people going by. And every time a plain woman passed, she said, see that woman? She's very plain. She has a husband. <laughs> <laughs> and the point is, there's somebody, God made it so that at the age of marriage, there are equal numbers of men and women on this planet. Yes. So there's somebody for everybody. Obviously, I mean, what woman wants to be with some fulminating, self-pitying, basement-dwelling, aggrieved man with homicidal intentions. <laughs> um, you know, I keep thinking about mass murder, and yet I can't find a woman who wants to go out with me. I mean, yeah, that's not, that's not super charming. Won't go over well on your dating profile. <laughs> but just turn the question on yourself. How, how do I be the man that the girl I want would want to have? How do I be that man? Think of the girl you want. Think of what she would like. Be that guy. And incels, it won't come down to superpowers. I know you're thinking that, <laughs> but it won't be about superpowers. So actually, yeah, I had a question following that. So the problem with modern men, this is a little bit to the boy men that you yeah. mentioned, that this delay and this maybe desire for the holy grail of perfection is resulting in men going into their 30s without the need to get married. And many, many people just blame feminism or whatever. Yeah. But what do you see the Peter Pan syndrome? Okay, so I think we need to be explicit about our bias here. Once we start talking about this, we are talking about the most advantaged part of our population. Mm -hmm. Because for two-thirds of American society, the reason men are finding it difficult to make these commitments is because they can't make more than $18 an hour. And as we have made it more difficult for men to make a living, they become less marriageable and they then sink upon themselves. And men, men without women are very self-destructive animals whether that's literally suicide, which is apparently on the rise, or whether that's suicidal behaviors and smoking and drugs. That or older men who, what's that? They're always like dying because they... Fall off a ladder. Fall off a ladder. <laughs> they didn't get attention, you know, right. hospital attention. Right. Well, we, we, we knew a man who was widowed and nearly died because he allowed his foot to... His, he got a little foot infection. He allowed it to separate until it was nearly at the lethal point. And because you know, no men, one was there. Men typically go to doctors when their wives force them to. Right. So he had no wife. So what, the, the Peter Pan, what we're talking about, the core thing that is wrong with the relationships between the sexes is that the return to male labor is not high enough to allow 
so many of our fellow citizens and fellow human beings to form to be supporters of families. But within the world, so understanding we're talking about a slice of humanity. Do you think that's important to male identity in order to get married? Oh, yeah. So that would be different from a female view. David Copperfield, first sentence, whether I shall be the hero of my own life, this narrative shall shortly show. Every man wants to be the hero of his own life. And that may mean being a soccer coach. I mean, you don't have to discover the South Pole. That's what men need to be happy, is a, a story, a mission, something where I accomplished this and this is who I am. I was the guy who coached our soccer team to the trophy. Um, or not. You, you got that kid who never could kick a ball properly, kicking what, the ball. Right, exact anything. I mean, yeah, I don't mean like professionals. I mean, no, like, I know, but the, the, that sense of accomplishment that, and mission. That, that I, have a, I have a purpose outside myself, outside my immediate environment. And I go to work and it's hard and it's unrewarding, but I come home and I have delivered the food to the family. That, that's what they men need. And, if, and we have taken that where we built a world, I don't want to make an example of it, we built a world in which that's available to fewer and fewer people. And that's the fundamental cause of all of this. But within the college educated group that our friends are our world, I think there is something where there is a withdrawal from this, there's a kind of overvaluation of adulthood. I mean, unless I'm fully a mature person, I'm not an adult at all. And a lot of adulthood, as we all know, being you know, now on the sort of the declining part of it, <laughs> yeah. is you start off by, by faking it. You know, there's a, another great American, great American literary quotation in Ulysses Grant's memoirs. He talks about the first time he ever led a large number of men into battle at the very beginning of the Civil War. And he's, he's, he's the head of a brigade, a couple thousand men. And he's leading them toward an enemy position. And he describes very vividly how as he gets closer and closer, he begins to feel these strange changes taking place in his body. And his heart seems to be beating hard, heavier and heavier and, his, and, his, and rising up into his throat until he cannot speak. And he's just paralyzed with, he doesn't call it fear, but that's obviously what it is. And he arrives at the enemy position and the campfires are all doused and the enemy has run away. <laughs> and he said, it suddenly occurred to me that he was as afraid of me as I was of him. He said, and this presented a view of the case that was new to me then, but that I have never forgotten afterwards. And a lot of adult life is... Homeroom girl. <laughs> what am I doing here? Who's in charge? I don't know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea what to do. And you have to like put on the face and pretend you know what to do and fail a couple of times. And then you'll know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> Please join the Femsplainers. Yes, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast hangout. And follow us on Instagram at the Femsplainer Podcast. And find the Femsplainers on Facebook and Twitter at Femsplainers. And learn all about us at Femsplainers.com. Thank you. Yeah, Femsplainer. Can I just ask a couple of things about sure. fighting? Probably the worst fights I remember in my marriage involved either driving or airport arrival times. <laughs> we those had, are serious. Those were serious. But actually, my late husband drove like a maniac. It was terrifying. He was also much older than you, as we've discussed. Yeah, we'll get to that. Okay. I mean, that doesn't, that's not relevant because he, he actually... You mean even when he was younger, he Actually, drove my like stepson, Tamler, no offense, Tamler, but you also drive like a maniac. have a total... Our fights over drive... Danielle thinks I drive like an old woman, that I'm way too cautious. <laughs> well, you're distracted. You're like this absent-minded professor. You drive following your thought patterns. And I once was on Connecticut Avenue, and I pulled up next to a car, and I realized... 
the young man next to me had a book propped up on his <laughs> steering wheel, and he was reading it. That's David. And it was you. It was you. I, I, yeah, sometimes I would read it red lights. <laughs> it was pre your phone, and now you just pull it up. So I'm not a very good driver. I don't really like it. Danielle's a terrific driver, and so we don't fight about that. I mean, when we go out in the evening, I will usually drive so that I can let her in and out of the car because so her dress doesn't get caught. But And let's be truthful, I will not likely be able to drive home. <laughs> <laughs> but no, we don't fight about that. And, and not about airport arrival times? We, we ha- um, punctuality. I think that the bigger question is, you have these marriages where someone is always punctual and someone is not, and that's a big tension. So I can't tell who... Well, no, but it comes down... I guess down, you would be the down, less punctual one. It comes down to, I think, also that sense of punctuality is really about respect, right? Well, that's it's an what, issue of respect. Yeah, that's what my late husband would say. Yeah, that it was and, and inconsiderate. It, right. You're not treating someone else's time as important as yeah. your own time. I, I don't think either... We, I, mean, we ha- I don't think we want to go into it here, but we, we have important fights like everybody, but neither of those would be a, an issue. I remember in our first year of courtship, not marriage, were the time when we had the most fights. And that was because... I think it's very important in marriage to learn how to fight. What are the rules of engagement? And right. that's something you... And not to go nuclear and say things that are... Well, even if you, y- y- even y- if you do... Well, actually... Don't. Please don't. Don't do it. Don't say things that are just going to resonate with that well, person. For well, unforgivable thing. But this is the thing that every couple has to work out their rules of engagement. And I remember the one thing I did, if I may reveal this, that drove David rightly insane this first year, is when we would get into an argument, I would walk out of the room. Just walk out. And it was so insulting. You know, like it was, it was so peremptory. And I just say, well, I'm just too mad. I can't talk about it right now. And then David was the one who said, look, you want to fight? Fight. But you do not walk out of the room on me because that is disrespectful. And if we're going to have it out, let's have it out. But you can't just shut it down by walking out of the room. And that, I remember, as being a profound game changer. Somebody, can I just bring this up because this is actually the perfect moment? I think they were trolling us, David. Yeah. But somebody said, if you punched her, would she call the police? (laughs) (laughs) What do you think, Dave? What would I do? Well, Danielle actually has a pretty formidable punch. (laughs) (laughs) And and a record of running after muggers and decking them. Yeah. But I've taken a punch from Danielle. It's not a joke. No, we have never abused you, honey. It was just fist it was playful. Fun. It was playful. It was playful. Anyway, Christina, question. Okay. So, David, I'm looking at our list, and it says, do you and Danielle talk politics all the time? That's a good question, especially these days, right? Not that they were going into politics, but I think there are a lot of marriages very much affected by what's going on right now. We talk politics a lot. We're both very interested in it. We are pretty broadly like-minded people. In fact, which helps. In all the time we've known each other. In every, in two countries, Canada and the United States, different levels. I think we have only once cast a different vote for any election. From mayor to prime minister to president, we've only cast one different vote. Can I say what it is? Yeah. It was in 2008. And Danielle voted one way and I voted the other. And we were discussing it. And she that said... was Obama versus McCain. McCain. She said... Do you want to tell the grandchildren that you voted against the first black president, or shall I? <laughs> when did you become Americans? Oh, at different times. I don't even I, remember I became, that. I became, right after 2001, I remember I was 
wearing my like flag shirt when I took the oath. And then you, you, you were weirdly held up because of your time in the White House. Yeah, I, I was given like this extra screening and scrutiny, so I didn't become an American citizen. Well, the Canadian, yeah, <laughs> aren't they our enemies yeah. now? Yeah. I guess. Uh, so I, I, I wasn't naturalized till, till 2007, but I also had a particularly weird situation, which is that my late mother had been born an American citizen. In fact, I have exactly the same fact pattern as Ted Cruz, and I often say I am as American as Ted Cruz. My mother was born a U.S. citizen. My father, born a Canadian citizen. I was born on Canadian territory because he was born in 1970 when there were one set of rules in place that governed that kind of situation. And I was born in 1960 when there were a different set of rules. And so I was not eligible at birth for U.S. citizenship. So I had to naturalize but because of the complexity of that situation. And because I had a, because of the White House service, I had a very thick file. It took longer to deal with my case than with Danielle's. I've got another question. Actually, there are two, David. One is, I think, and Christina will enjoy this one, about taking the last name in marriage, which we had, a, that was part of our <laughs> rules of engagement fights. And then... That's for you. That's questions for you. Okay. And then the second thing was, how important is the model of your parents? Like, how much does your parents' marriage oh, that's a fantastic play a role in your own? So why don't you start with the marriage and then... You do the last name. So both Danielle and I grew up in households that were happily married. Danielle's parents were on a second marriages for each. In both cases, the first marriages had obviously not worked out. The second marriage was a a very stable and, and happy one and lasted until Danielle's cherished stepfather died in 2013. Her stepfather and my father died not two weeks apart from one another. Yeah, that was a tough time. And Danielle yeah. got very ill that year too. And, and uh, it was, that was a quite a, it was a 25th anniversary, which was unsurprisingly not one week. Well, somebody asked what, in your 30 years of marriage, what was the saddest moment? I think that, <laughs> oh, I remember that. That month was, but that's where marriage helped because I, I felt at one point we were just like, two wounded Civil War soldiers leaning against each other and trying to play the, you know, the pipes and right. well, get through it. Well, Danielle was so sick, actually, when, in her father's, her stepfather's final, her, her father's final illness. She was in the hot, same hospital in a different room and couldn't get it. And I remember the last time you saw him, we put you in a wheelchair and I had to race you through all this vast halls of Toronto General. When she was on different floors and different parts mm -hmm. of the building, I was pushing her on a wheelchair so she could say her her last goodbye. And that's where you need yeah, I didn't know I had a I thought the way, I had stomach flu. It was, was an intestinal blockage. It was appendicitis. And appendicitis. Anyway, the importance uh, the, of you, role that's what you had to you had to be a team. And so my my parents had a were married for thirty four years until my mother's death. And that was a profound influence on me. They were both profound but my mother was a very analytic person. Really? Um, I just <laughs> from you <laughs> so, I never know. But she applied she was a famous journalist, a brilliant interviewer, but she applied the, the same analytic skills that she would apply to an interview with a prime minister or president, she would bring to the qual to questions of love and marriage. And I, we, my education, a lot of these, was sitting at her dining room table, which is now in our house, and over her leisurely meal was, was in the morning, breakfast was an evening show, and she would rise late, and when you'd, if you were there, you'd have a cup of coffee with her, and, or 19 cups of coffee. She basically lived on coffee. <laughs> and she would minutely think, well, when somebody said, what did it mean? And she would force you to think through every possible repercussion of anything you said. When you made that remark, David, she used to, I was her most, she would, she would often say, she'd fix her eyes on me and say, children are a trial. <laughs> she never looked at my sister when she said that. <laughs> and, but when you said that, did it occur to you that someone in the room might have been struggling with the very issue you were making light of? 
you know, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't ever not think about that again. So, so she would force, she made everything that was unconscious or unspoken, conscious and explicit. By the way, she could not tell a joke for this reason. And she, she didn't <laughs> very un- literal. Very she didn't literal. understand jokes, and she didn't, she didn't really, like irony. She didn't like jokes. So that's, uh, no, David irony. She like liked stand-up jokes. comedians. We, yeah. No, no, she Dave. liked jokes. Like she liked. It wasn't that she. She liked funny laugh. stories. She liked, yeah, funny. she liked funny stories. But, she, but if if your joke depended on on irony. making a phrase that could mean one thing or the other, right? Then then she would. She didn't like that. Did Are she? we allowed to bring up in this podcast how she felt about her future daughter-in-law? <laughs> Well, to go to that, no, <laughs> no I, I'm, I'm thinking as you were saying, describing her, I mean, she was, we cannot underestimate how famous she was in Canada. Like, yeah, she was the Bar- Barbara Walters and but, beyond. And beyond, and Walter Cronkite. She was this famous, famous broadcaster and an amazing interviewer. I mean, in fact, if you go on cbc.com or ca, I'm not sure what it's probably called. With Margaret Thatcher. Oh, she Her interview with Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher. And... She interviewed everybody, so you're the future daughter-in-law, and she's not, for reasons we can discuss later, super approving of this union. She was terrifying. But, for David, for the very reason you say, if you're not used to this kind of scrutiny of your own thoughts and ideas, and I, I came to just obviously love her, but appreciate her not taking any stray, random thought or prejudice for granted. But on the other hand, her questions would come out of left field. So you'd be having dinner and you'd be talking about something. And she, then she would just look at you and say, why did your parents get divorced? <sighs> and then you would go, uh, well, um, um, and then it was like she'd brought out a little file and she was trying, she was collecting facts for the file. And you thought you were just having a nice dinner, but she needs some facts. And then you would you would start to stammer and start to talk about it, and then she would cross-examine you. That's so funny, because that's definitely a question, you know, a mother would worry about. Exactly. No, and I don't, I don't begrudge her for it. And, and in a way, her sort of Mueller-like cross-examination would make you think about things in ways that you really simply hadn't. And it was very productive, but it was a little intimidating. Well, but, but you're a lot alike. I mean, this is there's a big surprise, <laughs> because I, I think... One of the, the questions you have is when your children marry is, you know, they're judging you in a way. I mean, that's because you think there's a statement on our parents. Now our, our children are of marriageable age. And so you sort of look, huh? And you suddenly understand how it looks like, oh, we're the ones who are being evaluated. And so which way are you going? And one of the things that has been so fascinating about the long process of a long marriage, and I hope it'll be much longer, is that Danielle, the lineaments of the interior, I mean, like Danielle, my mother and Danielle are both absolutely uncompromisingly honest people. I mean, my, my mother used to say, when I get senile, I will not be able to remember whether it was Danielle who first said this to me or my mother, but she said, above all things, I hate a lie. And that could be Danielle's motto. I think Danielle hates lying more than even cowardice, although they would be a close call. They're both in- intensely brave and, you know, both very visually creative and with strong individual sense of, of, of style and aesthetics, which you both express in, above all things, in gardens. And even your in some ways, I, I hear they're in your rhythms of speech. They're actually, and I think this is impressive, Canada, that there are rhythms of speech in Danielle that are very remi- remind me of my mother's rhythms of speech. And when I mean, it certainly wasn't, none of this thing, none of these, I mean, I don't want to be weird so about this. you married your mother, eh? I, well, I didn't think so. <laughs> but you know, here's why it's not a bad thing. Because I was, I wanted to give my sons advice. And I finally found what I thought was the critical bit of information you need to know about a young woman. 
is she nice to her mother? And a young man, is he nice to his mother? Do they get along? Because That's such a good if question. that fundamental relationship is in some way disordered, you're going to have a very neurotic person. Right. And so if you meet a girl who hates her mother or, you know, I told my son, run the other way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if she's, you know, considerate and loving and close, and that's our father. I mean, it can be yeah. she, well, my father, their we, parents. We, we all want to be more like my father. My father's the guy you want to be. But I, I, years and years ago, I had a friend who did suffer from very crippling depression. And his life fell apart in, in really quite spectacular ways. This is before I knew Danielle. And, and anyway, he was in trouble. So I, I drove to where he was. I heard about this. I drove to where he was and I picked him up and he had nowhere to go. And I, had a, a li- I was living in Toronto. I had a little, little apartment. There wasn't room for him there. So without a- asking permission, I, I just moved him into my parents' house and I took up. <laughs> they had a very large house. And so we're in the basement and my, they barely knew that anybody <laughs> was there. And so my friend and I, we spent about a week living in my dad's house as I was trying to like get him back on his feet. And we had these intense conversations that will go into all hours of the morning. And, and one night, it's like two in the morning, and my father stumbles out and becomes aware there are people in his dining room. Having, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, you're still here? <laughs> and, and he said, okay. He sits down. What's this all about? What are you guys talking about anyway? What's the issue? Like, uh, he takes cognizance of it. And I, I briefly explain. And my father waves and says, look, very simple. All you have to do is decide what you want and then go get it. And my friend, who you'll be happy to hear, thanks to, he was one of the first people on Prozac, and he made a very successful life, and he's now a partner in a law firm, and he's, he's married and has children, and everything went well. Looks back, and he still can't decide whether that was the wisest or stupidest thing <laughs> that anybody ever said to him. <laughs> well, no, but I remember, you know, because of her seriousness and conscientiousness, she said, when, you know, when we were engaged, she said, well... You know, you're marrying the family. Yes. And she was, it's not like she had tons of opinions on guests or something, but she was very adamant that this was not about a bride and groom. This whole bridezilla or these couples saying, we're going to just do it our way, that you really are merging families together and relationships together. And people aren't really thinking about that. I mean, I think today it's it's just so much about me, so much about us. Right. But you're not thinking of the long-term repercussions. Of- I mean, we, we have only one parent left, Danielle's mother. And, you know, we're, that's like, that, that becomes our, you know, it's our family. It's this one last tie to our, our children's history. And, and yeah, you, you build something, you're building this whole new civilization. That's, I mean, that's what family, I mean, this is not original to me, obviously. A, a family's a little civilized with its own language, its own little jokes. The culture. That, so that takes you to your, oh, the your famous name. names, your, your great oh. joke. And it's also from, what, from Danielle's first book, What Our Mothers Didn't Available on Amazon. I still in paperback. Um, okay, well, David, because I call, as I call you, you're my external memory drive, so I may not. I yeah, mean, but, when you're hanging around David, you don't need Google. Uh, oh. He's just, just to you, you I, I, but, no, but I also have, like, I remember Danielle's, like, Danielle's, what was the name of my third grade teacher? And I, <laughs> no, he really is my external memory <laughs> driver. <laughs> and, then, and then it is true that whenever the kids come throughout their childhood with a question that wasn't pretty basic, I say, you know, just, just go Google your father on that. For it's true, you are my destiny.
We're just talking with David Frum, author of Trumpocracy and a real Hatich. Don't translate that from the Hebrew. When we met in our year of courtship, in the year of working out rules of engagement, I think, I guess, I guess we were engaged at this point, which was, again, something I hadn't expected. I, I knew I wanted to spend my life with you, but it didn't occur to me, like, this wasn't just a piece of paper and that kind of thing. And then I said, why would I bother to change my name? And at that time, we were both journalists, and we were both writing for similar publications. And I felt ridiculously that I'd built some reputation on this maiden name. But as long as we're going to write for different publications, we should, I should retain my maiden name. And then I said, and, and anyway, you know, what if we got divorced? And you just went nuclear at that point. <laughs> and you said, oh, is that how you're approaching this? <laughs> just what if we get divorced? But you then, and as we've gone forward, that we, we accept that Crittenden, which of course I use on this broadcast, it's like a literary name that when you are, we, we used to joke that when we'd write for the same publications that if you had a problem with America, American government, economics, you'd write to David from, and if it was a problem about women, you'd write to Danielle Crittenden. Like you didn't want the, the yeah. D froms to be, to be mixed up. I think you made the point and I came around it. Like when you get married and especially it doesn't really become an issue until you have children, but you are building your own little country, your own little culture. And the kids, what are their names going to be? And how infinitely can you hyphenate things? So in my private life, I've always been Mrs. From, which I've loved. And it, it, it just, I mean, that's the tradition. You can argue about the tradition. You can say it's patriarchal or whatever. You could go the Spanish way and take the women's names. But whatever it is, you're taking on your new tribal identity. And it, it isn't about power. And it isn't about, you know, it just really avoids a lot of confusion. And, and it brings you together as a unit. That, Wait, what are you saying? You should take on the name? Yes. You... No, I totally think you should take on the name. Yeah. I do. You did. Christina yeah. Hoff Summers. Yeah, but I kept that Hoff. Yeah, well, mine, be- mine is like, it's like, well, Hillary Rodden, imagine being Danielle Crittenden from, like, that just doesn't It's a scan. bit much. It's a bit much. And then, and I, my kids are just Summers. I mean. Right. Yeah. But our kids are froms. Yeah, so I don't like the kids David, getting all the names. The kids get yeah, the Like the, the triple, ba- so David, do you have anything? Well, you could also, the other solution is the one that was adopted by the, a lot of the European upper class of before the French Revolution, which is whichever side of the family has more money, you take that name. <laughs> and, and, you know, that, that, that's, that's why the, the name Marvin gets reproduced from generation to generation, that there is always a childless Uncle Marvin who has a lot of money. And so that, 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 that's why there are new Marvins in the next generation. Is the <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're running out of time, Christina. So I have, I have a couple questions. We can, just, we can just do these quickly. I want to say, no, I want to say, okay. this is the okay. thing I came to say. Oh, he came to say something. Okay. Okay. So people often ask, what makes a good marriage? And what they mean by a good marriage too often is a marriage that is good for the people on the inside. Actually, it's a a word with double meaning because a good marriage has to meet two tests. It has to be good for the people on the inside, but it also has to be good, morally good, for the people on the outside. It's not enough for a marriage just to make happy the two bound in it. That's that's a wonderful thing, and that's, that's a hard enough goal. But there are children involved, there are communities, there are relatives. And 
we can both think of examples of marriages that were good for the people. We can all think of marriages that were good for the people on the inside, but they did not meet that other test. And one piece of advice when people are struggling, or maybe who are in a marriage that is good but not good enough, is if you focus on the second meaning of the word good, and you say, how do we, instead of how do we fix this marriage for the two of us, let's stop thinking about that for a week or two weeks or a month. And let's focus on how do we make this a better marriage for our children, our family, our community, our neighborhood, our city, our country? You'll be amazed at how much better it is for the people inside it. That's a very good point. And I even think that of weddings. I've heard of people who say, I mean, a wedding is for the people who are getting married, but it is also for the family Mm -hmm. and the community. So people say, oh, well, we want to have a goth wedding, and we don't want to invite her. we want to go to Fiji. Yeah, and my mother doesn't want it. You should incorporate a little bit what your mother wants, because it is, and your father, it's for them, and it's it's communal, and for everybody, and not just this isolated little unit. puts too much pressure on that little Mm. unit. It's, It's communal. Okay, so I don't. I don't think we. I think we've gone through most of the questions. This is from our friend Geek, who um, <laughs> regular correspondent. He said, "Have you, as a couple, planned for your retirement, not financially, but more what you both want to do for the rest of your lives, without work deadlines or children in the home? How might you both spend your days besides the obvious watching Oprah reruns all day?" <laughs> So that's maybe a good thing. The latter, the, the, I, the I, twilight years. Of I've marriage. thought about this, but you've never believed. I've given <laughs> I, you my view, I, I and you've never, ever, ever believed it. But Little it's, bees leaving in two years. Yeah, what are you going to do? I don't know. Empty so, nesters. Empty nesters. Here's your advice from David Frum. Well, here's no. Here's, it's just my plan. It's not advice. <laughs> this is just um, what I plan to do. But Danielle does not believe that I'm going to do this. So I've always been someone who's with a strong work ethic. I've done a lot of things. I've become quite convinced that one of the ways you get in trouble, especially in my line of work in journalism, is when you stick around too long. And you start trying to tell people how things are when what you know is how things used to be, and it's not how things are. Back in my day. Exactly. Or worse, you just keep... And and we can think of... I can think of lots, I'm sure we all can't, examples of people who really should have stopped writing. My plan, giving, giving this about eight or six or seven, maybe eight years, not a whole lot more than that, is, I say, okay, that's it. This, that, the time has come. I'm still physically, reasonably active. And I'm not going to work as hard at not working. Oh my God, that is actually terrifying. (laughs) Danielle, it's time for our 10K speed walk. (laughs) (laughs) Reading, having wine with lunch. I love it when you have wine at lunch. You never have wine at lunch, but I can have. You know what? This is a great thing. We can have wine with lunch again. And and enjoying the work of others. And I think, again, one one of the key to being a happy as opposed to a disgruntled older person is not to feel like the world's jostling you aside. If you insist on making the world jostle you aside, if you insist on that, then it will have to do it. If you voluntarily say, okay, I've had my time, now I'm stepping aside, and I'm still compass mentis, and I'm going to enjoy and applaud and support the work of others, then I think- Younger people. Long, younger people, let them tell me how things are now, then you can be uh, still of use to society, and you can you can be happy, and yeah, and then my plan, yeah, I, there will be a certain amount of admittedly 10k speed walking. That's no, no, oh no, my cool. gosh, you don't Christina, have to do it. I'm coming you, to hang out with you. You don't have to do oh, it. No, no, but then, I like then these. wine with lunch, reading. Um, Always the retirement joke, but never for lunch. Uh, oh, uh, for better or for worse, but not for lunch. <laughs> 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 no, but I like what I like what you're saying too. Is I want to have time to go back and read 
Tolstoy and Eliot and Dickens and because when, as you get older, you're reading a different book each time you read. Your, yeah. Right now, as you're older, you're sort of seeing okay. So you were grappling with all these problems, and you were one of the greatest creative minds in human history. And what did you say? And, and you enjoy it at a different level. So you have to go back and read everything again. And do that all again. Yeah. But above all, you know, Danielle and I, when Miranda lived in Israel, we, we tried to figure out what, what was so exciting and thrilling to her about life in Israel. And, and you had the insight. When you come from North America and to Israel, it's a striking thing to enter a society that is run by and for the young. Because mm-hmm. we live in a society that is, on its good days, run by and for the middle-aged. And a lot of the time is run by and for people who are, you know, a little farther beyond middle age. And we need to welcome step the, aside, step aside and get welcome off the stage, welcome the young, and 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 not in a feeling like, ouch, but <laughs> it's time. You've got your health. Maybe you've got some financial freedom, and it, maybe we have grandchildren. Maybe we have children. Grandchildren. Yeah, and grandchildren. Uh, David, David, have a, a, a wedding, <laughs> and, and then and then and then <laughs> just and then just enjoy each other as as, as long as we can until it, it's time to go. Except that I do feel that many of the millennials are getting bad messages from deranged baby boomer professors. When we were raising children, and we would give them all kinds of improving messages, <laughs> which they would... Very improving messages. Which, which they, they didn't listen they to. They didn't listen to. I, I, it, it struck me that what was remarkable was that they heard nothing and they saw everything that what you think you are teaching them is not what you're teaching them. So just be very conscious of what you're really teaching. And when you're worried about all of these bad messages from elderly baby boomers, I have confidence in those millennial students that are looking at them. And, does she seem happy, this person mm-hmm. who's saying this to me? Does her life seem fulfilling to her? Do I want to be her? And if you want to show people how to live, live that way. Right. And, then let, and, if, and if they judge you, I mean, I, and this is one of the things that maybe this is a place to end this thing. So you know, I think one of the things that you feel when you've been married a long time is you also have a kind of, you know, you're, you're, you're an example. And people learn from the things you're doing right and the things you're do, uh, doing wrong. They look at you and say, I'd like this part of your life. I don't want that part of your life. And I, I think that's true with, with teaching. I mean, the, the, the teachers who have impressed us, it's not just because of what they say. It's because of who they are. It's because of who they are that we listen to what they say. I have, I know we're, this is like, we should have ended it right at that moment, but I realized there was one other thing I wanted you to talk about briefly. Edit it and put it back in the middle. No, I've got, I've got one too. You do yours, I'll do mine, and then we're out of here. Okay. We see now that because of this, whatever, when people do get married and the modern ideas of parenting, that the marriage gets lost in the parenting, right? That the, chi- the children today seem to run the marriages, and we've talked about this, Christina, before. But the the, the adult culture of the marriage, yeah. sexless have- marriages devoted to children, right? And you've always been this force for keeping different aspects of marriage separate well, from each other. When when we were young parents, and I was making what was a good living any place other than the city of New York. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <But> Even under Dinkins. <laughs> in the city of New York, you, you just felt like, oh my God. But the one thing that we always budgeted, rent first, and after rent, the next thing was four hours a day of liberty for Danielle. And you just had to, because otherwise she, she and it, that wasn't a kindness to her, that was for me, because, because I didn't, you know, we were going to be parents together, but... You don't want to lose the part where your romantic companions, those are very stressful years. And 
one one of the things I have to say to without while keeping our, our PG rating here is to young couples is, you know, if you can get through it and if you remain physically fit, you will be amazed how much of the early part of your life comes back in the right. middle part of your life. And it goes fast. Those um, years go but, fast. And and that's not that you want to hurry through them because they're they're wonderful, but but it is it is important not to, not just to become co parents. Right. You always kept your eye on the ball of marriage, which was uh, and and by the way, I think mothers especially have a hard time doing that. And it really falls to the father to say, you know what? You don't have to do that. We're going out for dinner. Yeah. Or, so, or for a walk. I mean, like, they don't make, walk, you know, maybe you don't, you don't have the money. Okay. Just go for a walk, buy a soda, sit on a park bench, kiss. Oh, oh I like that. Aww. Okay, David, final question. You have a lot of opinions and no. confidence in your opinions. No. Are you a person, and this was asked by Jeffrey Williams on Twitter, will you stop and ask direction <laughs> if you are lost? Um, answer the question. Who should answer that? Okay, you answer. What, no, no, go ahead. Well, first, it's in its literal form, it's an old-fashioned question because we all have the Google machine in our pocket and who is ever <laughs> lost? I don't ask directions mostly because it just... It, it just seems like kind of an embarrassing kind of interaction. Oh. But, but, but beyond that, do I ever think about being wrong? And do I reevaluate my opinions? You're saying no, but that's not... I'm wagging my head no. No, I think yeah. he does. I definitely think he oh, does. Oh, no, you reevaluate your opinions. But well, is okay, it... you go ahead. What no, are... no. It's just, are there ever confessions of wrongness? I I'll give you this. Every time I think you've been wrong, except on directions and trivial things. I've like argued with you and argued with you, and then a day will pass, and I'll go, oh, damn, he's right. I can't believe I'm putting this on record, but like 99.9% of the time. But I am, I am very often thoughtless and heedless. And, no, you're just an absent-minded professor. And, and when I, that, that's, we, ha, we do have a custom in our um, family at the, the Yom Kippur where we, we actually do formally, everyone has to sit down and beg each other's pardon for the things they've done during the year. And... And one of the things that is good about that ritual is for all the things that have built up in the year, when the time actually comes to do it, you know, it's sort of amazing. Like, you look back on the year and say, there's nothing. You don't have to beg my pardon for, for anything. I hope, you know, that I, I've, I've always felt that. And I hope you feel that, that, you know, you look back on it in the scheme of things that, you, you know, one is wrong all the time. Well, it's been a great 30 years, my love. As the old 1970s saying went, love means never having to say you're sorry. But I don't know. I, I wouldn't say never. Um, that's probably not right either. But all I know is that every year I've spent with David has been a total joy. And we both appreciate you coming on and being subject to all these intrusive questions. By the way, the cocktail is a Campari and orange juice. My, David my, warm, my warm weather favorite. That's true. That's your summer favorite. You don't really have a winter cocktail, but you have a... I, I do now, though. I've, I've become very, uh, uh, since my trip to Louisville, I've become very keen on Bourbon. bourbons with huge ice cubes. Ooh, but that's not a cocktail. Oh, true. True. No, but, but it's But your good. summer cocktail is Campari and orange juice, one-third Campari, two-thirds orange juice with ice cubes. Well, I used to have a winter favorite, but you made it. I couldn't keep up with the ones you made. And that the sidecar? The sidecar. Oh, God, her sidecar, <laughs> which I, we no. got on hikes on the Billy Goat <laughs> yeah. Trail. It's just, it's just, Danielle is a better man than I. No, I cannot I'm a... cope anymore with hey, the sidecars. I come from Australia. David, you said so. when you were young, you were too incompetent even to 
sign a cell phone contract, but I have to sign a cell phone contract. So after this is over, like you're, you're more mature, can I get some info? Okay. Obviously. All right. I, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, honey. Bye bye. When you hold my hand, I understand the magic that you do. You're my dream come true, my one and only So David Fromm has, I think he's left the building. <laughs> we drove him out of here. <laughs> we drove him out of here. But that was so interesting. And I, he is the world's, just so people know, the world's best husband, I Aww, have to say. I've I, watched. I, I don't have experience with other husbands, but I can <laughs> say he's a, he's a wonderful husband to me. No, Very, just, very lucky. And you just feel lucky all the time. You, you, I used to, I remember younger have all these opinions on marriage and how does it work and how does it work. And then you just realize, no, it's just pure damn luck. Yeah. And, you know, my parents had a wonderful marriage, a romantic marriage. I would sometimes, you know, accidentally come into a room and see them kissing or dancing. And you go, ew. Yeah, it was awful. (laughs) But they were in love. And part of it was because my father, to the end of his life, Kenneth Hoff, married to Dolores, to the end of his life, he still felt like, I can't believe that the beautiful... Dolores White Aww. fell in love with me. But I think that's true of David Frum, that he can't believe that the beautiful... Oh, I felt like I'd won the jackpot. I think I can now take off my interviewer's cap and put on my wife cap and say, I think one of the reasons I fell for David so quickly, aside from his incredible lobster slain skills, was because it became apparent so quickly what a deeply kind and generous and honorable man he was and is. And I think it's David's example as a husband that taught me to be a better wife. Christina, I don't know that you know this story, but when his mother was dying in the hospital, you know, young at 54, at one point she held her father's hand and she said, we were always kind to each other. And I guess we've been talking about a secret sauce. And if there is a secret sauce, maybe it's finding someone you love and care about more than yourself, whom you never want to hurt or disappoint. And I know that David's happiness is more important to me than my own. And if a husband feels that same way, the relationship never feels exploitive. It just keeps you striving to be a bigger and better person, I think. Oh, you're so lucky. You've had that for so long. It's an achievement and remarkable. It's luck. <laughs> and for Klimt. I think he's still I think, smitten. I think it's that soulmate thing that we always talk about. And as we talked about in the podcast, like, how do you know? You can't ever really explain it. It just, you know. And I think what the point he was making about trying to be, overthink it, trying to have these lists of criteria, trying to think of yourself as this finished person. And only once I've finished myself. Can I go into where I always thought, and this is, you and I were both lucky to marry young. And I think this is why it's good to marry young is because you're like, I think, think of those tree trunks that get intertwined as right. they grow. And, and together you grow into each other. 
and you become solid together. You don't have all these like Henry Higgins like habits. Right. You know, As you become older, you become way more rigid. Rigid and you can't work with it. But when you're young, you're flexible and then you do grow together. And then I think if you do it with one sort of understanding of the fact that being happy and getting along with a person is an achievement mm-hmm. and it's it's a virtue and something you should be able to do. It's very easy not to get along and be fractious and contentious and that's easy. Right, this whole idea, well, I just have to be me. Well, you know what? Sometimes your me is obnoxious. Your like, me is obnoxious. In fact, almost all of us are obnoxious, let's face it. <laughs> but having to work through somebody who is a, a sympathetic partner who loves you, but who wants the best you, and that's not always, that can be, that can be hard, right? Like, I like the fact that I can just do X or Y, and I don't need you to tell me not to do that, but maybe somebody should be telling you not to do that. Did you ever see My Dinner with Andre? Yes, but I can't remember. I can't remember. So long ago. It was so long ago. My God, it was so long ago. But there was just one moment where one of them was carrying on about all his adventures and going around the world, but then the Wallace Shawn character, I think it was Wallace Shawn, who was the nerdy, more nerdier character? I don't. We don't know. We don't know. We have no idea. You'll have to Google it. That Google, if David were here, he would know. (laughs) That character said that the greatest adventure, he had a more conventional life appearing, but he said the greatest and most engaging adventure of his life was his marriage and getting, really getting to know another person, allowing yourself because he made that sound as exciting and it was... Well, it's, 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 you know, not to be cliche, it's a journey. We talked about this on the Happiness Podcast with Jonathan Rausch, that as you get older, it doesn't necessarily get worse. And the same is true of marriage. We have this cliche idea that, you know, the longer it goes on, the more bored you get, you know. And in fact, it's, it's this, it can be this wonderful voyage where each age is a different place that you explore together. Right. And you become, he, he wrote, just to finish it off, because I know how long we've gone, but it was, it was fun and interesting. But in this essay we quoted during the interview of David wrote on the 20, our 20th anniversary, I think this is very relevant to what we're saying. He said, it's common nowadays to talk of marriage as work. There's some truth to that. And then he said, certainly it must be quite a job to be married to me. No, honey. He <laughs> said, but even if the language of work is valid up to a point, it probably should be avoided. We live in an era where young people are frightened by marriage. They delay till midlife or avoid it altogether. We who have experienced marriage's obligations and joys do poor service by speaking of the institution in ways almost calculated to make it seem onerous and laborious. It would be more accurate and more attractive to speak of marriage as a construction, a project, something that builds us even as we work to build it. Brilliant. Parfait. (laughs) It's the greatest of all adventures. Greatest of all adventures. I still want to know about my cell phone contract. We'll get to that. Okay. Okay. 